Good morning. My name is Hindel Grossman. I'm a divorce attorney. My law firm is called Grossman and Associates LTD, and it's located in Newton, Massachusetts. Today, I'm sitting with Todd Weaver, whose business name is Strategies for College, to talk about strategies for college, in particular, those strategies that may be applicable to those families who've been divorced and how to maximize financial aid. College has become so expensive, and the return on investment is not as clear as it perhaps once was, it's important for the student to be looking at great schools where they're going to have opportunities to be exceptional and do it at the right price. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Hindell. Our podcasts are called Inside Divorce, and we talk about topics that are uh, applicable to divorced families. So I'm going to ask first you to tell us about yourself a little bit, and then we'll talk about how to maximize financial aid. Sure. Thank you for having me here today. Um, my firm, Strategies for College, has been around for more than a quarter of a century, helping families integrate cost management with admissions and helping the student find a happy place where they can fit in and get out in four years and move on with life. Uh, and the idea around a lot of our planning is to make sure that families um, come out of this financially sound as well and give them the tools to make those decisions properly. Uh, my background, though, is interesting. I worked at Northeastern University in uh, Boston. Uh, while I was getting my master's degree, I was working 20 hours a week in the financial aid office as a graduate assistant. So I learned a heck of a lot about the financial aid process. And that's what I bring to the families I work with today, is the inside knowledge. What percentage of the families that you work with have been divorced, do you think? I'd say as a company, we probably have at least a third of our annual um, clientele coming from situations of separation, divorce, remarriage. Um, so it's a very uh, sizable group. Where are the offices for Strategies for College? Strategies for College has families we work with in more than 20 states right now, uh, virtually and in person. but. Our main offices are in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, Boston, Massachusetts area, uh, Shelburne, Vermont, and Austin, Texas. I see. So you're based in Massachusetts, aren't you? I am based in Massachusetts. Well, so tell us how generally, how do, how do families maximize financial aid? For so their tell children? us, I'd how say the first generally, how line do, of how do families uh, thought is to start early, figuring out what's affordable and what's not. And for families to do that, properly, um, they really should start thinking about the college funding process when their student is a sophomore in high school. The federal government recently changed the way the financial aid forms are looked at in that families can now apply for financial aid in October of a student's senior year in high school using their tax information from two years prior to the student entering college. And that's a lot of verbiage there. What it comes down to is prior, prior year. So the colleges are asking families to give uh, their income information from two years prior to the student entering college. All right, so for example, um, if the child was a senior in the pa this past fall, 2016, the application could have been filed for financial aid. Is it the FAFSA form? Yes, the FAFSA form and the CSS profile, the other financial aid. All right, there are two applications for financial aid then. 
So both forms could have been filed as early as October of the child's senior year of high, of high school. Correct. And using, in our example, what uh, year's tax information would be applicable. So for those students going to college in the fall of 2017, uh, the family was able to use their 2015 tax return. Okay. And when did this rule change? It just was announced a, a little over a year ago, but went into um, place in October of 2016. Say so, so quite recently. All right. So this past October was the first time families were able to use the prior, prior, you, you say prior twice. Prior, prior. Prior, prior uh, in tax information for purposes of financial aid. Correct. And was the motivation behind this new rule that the two years ago, at least the tax return has been filed and therefore more reliable information? That's a big part of it. I think in the past, people had to scramble to get their taxes done typically by February uh, after the tax year ended only several weeks prior to that. So they may have just received their W-2s. Colleges were asking for the financial aid forms with a deadline of February 1st or February 15th. And it was a major struggle for people to get their paperwork done on time. And the big push behind this uh, change was to allow families to use taxes that were already done. Um, even if they were on extension, they would be done <laughs> by October. Uh, with the idea that that would make things more smooth in terms of creating an actual financial aid offer. I see. And more reliable tax information. Correct. Or income information. Yes. All right. So I remember then when I filled out the FAFSA long ago for my kids to go to college, I remember it was due in February. Is that right? Yes. Approximately. FAFSA was due in February. And um, you're right. Didn't have a lot of information. Took a few guesses. Yes. About um, what, inf what information I needed to put on the form. So. so accuracy is hopefully going to improve. I see. <laughs> and is the turnaround time any better? Well, that's a great question. Uh, turnaround time for many colleges is going to be the same as it was. In other words, many students won't hear from a financial aid office until probably the last week of March or April 1st of the student's senior year in high school, giving them about four or five weeks to make a decision because May 1st is the deposit day. Uh, but there are many schools who've said that they will try to turn around a financial aid award uh, by January, February timeframe, right. which gives families a little more time to consider the opportunities. That's excellent. So you mentioned there are two different forms and therefore two different processes for financial aid. So one is the FAFSA, it's F-A-F-S-A. What does that stand for? That's the um, free application for federal student aid. And who, who does that form go to? That form goes to every college in the country that takes federal money which is virtually everyone. Okay. There are a few schools that don't, but uh, in large part, the FAFSA form is what determines eligibility for federal loans, grants, scholarships, and state loans, grants, and scholarships. And many institutions will use it to determine what type of institutional aid they want to give to a student as well. Institutional aid meaning money from the school itself, not from the federal government. That's correct. Okay. Well, this is interesting behind-the-scenes information about the finances of the college. So that's the FAFSA. It goes to the college. The college makes a determination based on, I guess, the amount of federal aid it gets. Is that fair? Yes, te well, technically, the FAFSA form is filed through the Department of Education, and then the data is sent to the colleges uh, that are listed on the form. Oh, I see. 
and then the colleges will process based on their own internal uh, methods what the financial aid. But the financial aid, sorry, the financial aid award from the college through the FAFSA process though comes from the college, not Department of Education. That's correct. Yeah, the college is the financial aid office that, or the financial aid office of the college is what. Uh, creates the award based on the federal guidelines, state guidelines, and institutional guidelines of each school. All right. Is there some base amount or some kind of required amount that's given to each student through the FAFSA process? Well, depending on what the family's um, expected family contribution is, that's called the EFC, um, the college will then offer financial aid based on that number. So, for example, if a family has an EFC calculated to be $20,000 a year, and the college has a sticker price of $60,000 a year, the difference between cost of attendance and the EFC is $40,000. And theoretically, the college would create a financial aid package that meets as much of that $40,000 as they can. Right. There are only a handful of colleges out there that meet 100% of that number, so people should always be mindful that they might pay the EFC plus More. a difference. Plus more. Yes. All right. So, with respect to the FAFSA form, um, are there th is there information required on that form that's particular to divorced families, or that divorced families need to be particularly aware of? Yes, that's a great question. The FAFSA form is a document that only requires the custodial parent in a divorce to report financial information. That can be pretty advantageous to some families, or or not, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on the situation. Uh, but the custodial parent is required to present their income from their prior, prior year taxes and their assets as of the day they fill out the form. So how do parents determine who the custodial parent is for purposes of the FAFSA application? That's a very interesting question because it might be very different from a judgment, uh, a document that's put in place saying 50-50 or uh, whatever the split is or financial responsibilities are uh, may be great for the divorce and the situation afterwards, but the colleges really don't take a look at that information. They want to gather the data they need from the custodial parent, if it's the FAFSA form, and simply have the family pay the difference. So is it possible then uh, in a scenario where the children live primarily with mom and dad is paying child support for dad to claim that he's the custodial parent if he has the lower income and there's a greater advantage to get financial aid? Well, you want to be careful about the legality of it. The way the question is asked on the FAFSA form is structured in such a way that uh, there are two options. The first question is, where do you, the student, live? With whom do you reside more in the calendar year? And theoretically, you want it to be the parent with a lower income. Then if that is a 50-50 split and you can't determine who's who, uh, then the second question, the tiebreaker question on the FAFSA is, well, which parent provides more financial uh, support during the year? And frankly, you don't want to answer that question, <laughs> right? Because then you're putting down the higher income parent. Right. Do you have to answer both questions? One or the other. One so you or want the to other. answer the first one. I see. But if you can't answer the first one, I see. if you can't separate who's who, then 
the default is the second question. Well, the fact is that sometimes it is difficult to tell who the primary or custodial parent is mm -hmm. because there are vacations where the children spend uh, with the other parent um, and summer times with the other parent. And, you know, it's sometimes people just count up days or hours or overnights in some fashion to determine who the custodial parent is for purposes of the divorce. Um, it's different potentially for purposes of FAFSA application. It is, and I think for many families, the simplest way to say it is where the student uh, receives their high school transcript, what their address is at the high school, you know, which, which house is the residence of the student, that's typically going to be used as the custodial address. Have you seen any circumstance where the Department of Education or the school investigates where that custodial address uh, whether it's a legitimate custodial address? I personally haven't seen that, although I know that some colleges will ask for verification forms to be filled out, and perhaps over the course of a four-year education, they might do an audit of the family. Uh -huh. So the potential is there uh -huh. to be questioned yeah. <laughs> about it. And I think it really is up to the family to be as truthful as possible. Sure, for sure. So in general, though, it, it makes uh, sense, if possible, for the lower earner to be the custodial parent to maximize financial aid. Is that right? Ideally, if the student is looking at colleges that only take the FAFSA form. Okay. So that brings into the question of the other form. That's right. In the process. Does the FAFSA require a copy of the judgment, a divorce judgment, be supplied? No. The form itself does not. A college may ask that question. Um, I guess one caveat is that if the custodial parent is remarried, the new spouse needs to be reported on the FAFSA, even though they're not the biological parent. Uh, you mean the new spouse's income? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So that can be a surprise for many families <laughs> yes, who I didn't imagine. realize that was going to occur. Right. So is there language that you recommend in the uh, separation agreements for divorce that would be helpful to the parents in a maximizing financial aid? You know, it, it's, it, for the FAFSA, it really doesn't matter so much. It's more a planning opportunity, though, for families who happen to have a divorce prior to the student becoming a sophomore in high school. There are opportunities to talk to them about what the best financial outcome is going to be mm -hmm. for the college years. Okay. All right. What's the other form called? So there are many different uh, nicknames for it, but the profile is the most common. It's the CSS profile. It's College Scholarship Service profile form that is run by the College Board, um, which is the same entity that many students know as the SAT, AP, um, uh, sub subject test uh, website where they can gather. Okay. Uh, a lot of material there. So the same entity that does the testing uh, reviews this profile form? Yes. All right. And then submits that form or that data to the 229 colleges that use the form. So not every college uses this profile form? That's correct. So what's the benefit to those colleges to using that profile form? If well, the, the profile is more um, in, intrusive. I guess is a good word, <laughs> into a family's financial situation. Uh, the colleges that use the profile want to get a broader, deeper and broader picture of a family's financial situation. And by deeper, I mean 
they want to perhaps ask what the home equity is, which the FAFSA does not. I see. Uh, they might want to know if... Well, when you say home equity, you mean the equity in the marital home or in the home? In the home. Not with the home equity loan balances or anything like that? No. So okay. the, the the amount of equity that a parent theoretically could borrow against yes. is what the, the profile point. schools <laughs> are looking at. The profile form also asks for custodial and non-custodial parent information. So the colleges that use the profile form are going to gather the financials from both biological parents anyway. And how about the new spouse? Does the profile require the income from the new spouse as well? Yes, it does. Ah, so potentially three, potentially four Potentially pockets. four incomes. They would love to see that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's definitely something I've run into with families that I work with, where there might now be four incomes uh, being considered for financial aid purposes. Oh, interesting. Uh, So on the profile, what else is asked that might impact eligibility for financial aid? So the equity in the home, potentially four incomes. Equity in a business, if a family has a small business. The FAFSA does not count the assets and liabilities of a family-owned business where um, there's less than 100 employees, whereas the profile does. So the profile will go after that information. Uh, The profile may also... Um, create uh, a minimum contribution from a student for their college education. Even if the student is not working and making money, those colleges that use the profile are going to expect a minimal contribution from that student. So they will build that into the financial aid formula. Is the contribution from the student a percentage of the tuition? How is that determined? It is typically a dollar amount roughly between $1,800 and $2,000 a year is the minimum. Some colleges may have a threshold of three or $4,000. i have even seen some say on their websites, we expect the student to contribute $6,000 a year for their own education. Go figure out how to do it. Interesting. <laughs> uh, so it can depend on the school. Uh-huh. And this is for, we've been talking about financial aid generally, but there are student loans and there are parent loans, right? Mm-hmm. So do we want to go back to the FAFSA and talk about both student and, and parent sure. loans? All right. Sure. So the FAFSA form is a form that should be filled out by every family, whether they think they're eligible for money or not. A um, few reasons behind that. Here in Massachusetts, for example, students who attend public high schools and gain uh, advanced MCAS scores uh, may be eligible for the John and Abigail Adams Scholarship which is free tuition at the state universities in Massachusetts. The way to obtain the free tuition is to fill out the FAFSA form. I see. So even if you're an affluent family and you don't think you're eligible for money, well, you could be throwing away free tuition if you don't fill out the form. Because people leave money on the table that's if they right. don't submit they the FAFSA. They leave money on the table, and that's not a good thing to do. Okay. The FAFSA is definitely required, though, for a student to be Um, authorized to take on a student loan, a federal student loan. So the federal student loan program, the direct Stafford loan is typically what it's called, Um, the student needs to fill out the FAFSA, you know, theoretically it's the parent filling out the FAFSA for the student, but the FAFSA form is what then allows the student to take out uh, the federal loans of $5,500 as a freshman 
$6,500 as a sophomore, $7,500 as a junior and a senior. Some of that may be subsidized, some of it may not. That just means that we, the taxpayers, pay the interest while the student is in school if it's subsidized. But if it's unsubsidized, then the student is responsible for the interest. After they graduate? Actually from day one. Oh, is that right? Yeah, for the unsubsidized loans. All right. So does the FAFSA have to be submitted every year for students? Yes, it does. Yes, the FAFSA is what determines aid eligibility on an academic year. So it has to be renewed every year. I see. So some parents may be enthusiastic about submitting the FAFSA for freshman year, maybe sophomore year, and lose interest in junior and senior year, but they're leaving that $7,500 a year on the table. That's right. That they're not accessing. Yeah, and frankly, that's pretty decent money because the student can gain access to that uh, federal loan with no cosigner, um, minimal interest. It's currently at 3.76%, mm -hmm. and that's a fixed interest rate for the 10-year life of that particular note. Yeah. Um, and uh, the student has repayment options that start six months after graduation. I see. For 10 years. Yeah. Now, where else can an 18-year-old go get a $5,000 loan without any security? Right. Well, 5000 plus well, 5500 plus 5500 plus... That's right. Well, 6500 well, right? It adds up to roughly $27,000 over yeah. a four-year college career. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's the student loan portion of the FAFSA. And what about the parent loan portion of the FAFSA? So if parents wish to take on loans to pay for college or pay for the difference that they can't afford from cash flow or uh, assets that they've put aside for college, they may easily jump into what's called the parent loan for undergraduate students, the PLUS loan. The interest rate's a bit higher on that. It's over 7%, uh, but it does have built-in death and disability insurance. It has uh, uh, the ability for some families up to a certain income to actually deduct some of the interest, much like a mortgage interest payment. So there are some benefits to it. It's a credit-based loan, so if you have good credit, you'll probably get the loan. Uh, but it's something that the FAFSA needs to be filed in order for the parent to be eligible for that loan. Now the caveat there is if you have a non-custodial parent who wants to take a PLUS loan, they're not required to file the FAFSA, but they can simply contact the financial aid office at the school their student is attending and get authorization to take a PLUS loan in their name as well. Uh. All right, so this is particular to divorced families. So the non-custodial parent files the FAFSA form and is eligible, or makes the student eligible with any luck for some student financial aid plus potentially parent plus loans to the custodial parent. Custodial parent, correct. And then the non-custodial parent who has not submitted the FAFSA form can still go directly to the financial aid office of the institution and take out a parent plus loan themselves. Yes. All right. Well, that's interesting, too. Um, so... We were talking before, I'm kind of circling back to the FAFSA, what information does the FAFSA not ask that the profile does ask? We were talking before about as a home equity, equity in the marital home or equity in, in any real estate. Yeah, well, so let's clarify that. So the FAFSA um, will not ask the custodial parent for any information on their primary residence. Okay. And how about bank account balances? 
they want to know what your cash savings and checking balances are as of the day you fill out the form. So theoretically, you want to fill out the form at the end of the month when your balances are lower. <laughs> After you paid some bills. That's right. And what about retirement assets? On well, the house, so. it's interesting you bring that up because retirement assets are unfortunately put on the form too often by families, and that is not correct. You don't need to put retirement assets. Qualified retirement funds are not to be put on any of the financial aid forms. Neither financial aid forms. Correct. Wow, they're exempt then. They're exempt from the calculations. All right. Um, now the CSS profile. Let me just say this: they may, some of those schools may ask for the balance of your retirement, but they're not going to use it in the formula. And I, I like to think they're trying to be altruistic and helping families separate retirement funds from non-retirement funds when they ask that question, and really forcing a parent to realize, oh, I don't need to put my 401k balance in this particular answer. Yes, I see. Um, it, which I think is a, a very good thing because too many families do put their retirement monies in the answer box for the question, you know, what do you have for investments? Mm-hmm. Um, and that just blows up the whole financial aid opportunity. Mm-hmm. And they wonder why they didn't get any financial aid. I see. Because they you filled the form much. out wrong. <laughs> right. right. And so um, this, the profile form... So let's talk about that for student uh, aid and parent aid. Can you tell me about what the process is there? So the profile form is going to have the custodial parent fill it out. And there is a section on there that asks for the non-custodial parent's name, address, email, phone number, etc. And for the colleges that require the non-custodial profile, a code will be generated when the student or the parent, the custodial parent registers for the profile. Then the non-custodial parent should receive information on how to get started on their form. Now the benefit of a divorced family is that the custodial parent will, will never see the numbers that the non-custodial parent puts in and vice versa. So there's still that level of privacy uh, built in there, which is a good thing. Okay, so let me just review for a moment. So the FAFSA, only one parent needs to submit the form. That's the that's the custodial parent. Correct. And for the profile form, both parents have to submit separately. Yes. Both parents, divorced parents, have to submit separately, but neither one gets to see the information on that's the correct. other's form. All right. All right, so for the profile form, again, what's the what's the likely outcome of student aid? It can, well, so it can theoretically be pretty good because the profile form does provide more allowances to a family against income, assets, number in the uh, household. They allow for um, an emergency cash fund, so they're not going to assess a percentage of what a family has in cash. Mm-hmm. It might be higher than the FAFSA's. Mm-hmm. Uh, allowance, which is a very nice thing. So in years past, uh, prior to the 07-08 financial crisis in the country, it was often common to see the FAFSA have a lower EFC, a lower expected family contribution than the profile because home equity was not included in the FAFSA number. But since the market changed, uh, there might be occasions where the profile EFC is equal or lower than the FAFSA. 
So theoretically, could um, parents take out Parent PLUS loans through the FAFSA process and through the profile process? Well, the registration for the loans for the student and the parent loans is only through the FAFSA. The profile is used by colleges that want to get a bigger picture of the family's financial strength, and they typically use that data from that form to determine how much of their institutional free money they are going to give to that student. Uh, so the profile really only talks, only gives awards for free money, not loans. Typically, yes. I say that's an important distinction Unless, between the processes. I, I would say the only caveat there might be if a, a particular college has their own internal loan system that they might tie to the profile numbers. It's rare, but... I see. So the loans come through the FAFSA process. Correct. Parent and student loans through the FAFSA process, and the what we're calling free money comes through the profile process from the institution. In general. In general. <laughs> <laughs> like everything, there, there are exceptions. There are always caveats. Or as I say to my children now, there there are more exceptions than rules now. Yes. There <laughs> used to be more rules and occasional exceptions. All right. So would you have any suggested tactics or strategies um, for parents, particularly divorced parents, how to maximize college aid? Well, if a family wants to take advantage of finding the the best financial aid package available to them, and their student or students, depends how many they have to educate, it's probably a really good idea to run their numbers when their student is still a sophomore in high school, no later than junior year in high school. The oldest child, I Correct. imagine, right? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and if you haven't done so yet and you already have one in college, get on it now. Uh -huh. But run your numbers to determine your eligibility for aid with one parent reporting financials through the FAFSA or both parents reporting through the profile. And there are calculators out there that allow you to do that. And, and frankly, I offer um, complimentary reviews of EFCs when people come to my website and submit their financial data. Oh, it's on your website, it's some form calculation of yes. it? Yes. Uh, EFC stands for? Expected Family Contribution. Thank you. And most people would call that a deductible. <laughs> that's, uh <-huh>. your, <laughs> that's your minimum threshold you're probably you're out of pocket. Pay, right? Uh -huh. So the EFC calculation you recommend in the sophomore year of um, the student's high school yes. first to determine what the parent is going to be expected to pay. Yes. So once a family has determined their aid eligibility, they might find some wildly different numbers. Uh, for example, a, a custodial parent that files only the FAFSA form may have an EFC of $15,000 a year, but then when they run the numbers combining both incomes, on the profile, perhaps it comes back at $25,000 a year oh. as a combined EFC. Yeah. And you look at that and say, well, that's a difference of 10000 a year. That's $40,000 over four years. Yeah. Maybe our students should not be considering colleges that use the non-custodial information. Meaning the colleges that take the profile form. Right. So you eliminate the colleges that require the profile form. That's right. That's really a key narrows tactic. Down. Yeah. Now, many families don't want to hear that because that might eliminate a so-called dream school or a college that the student has always had their eyes on. Or the parent has had or their Or the eyes parent on. has had their eyes <laughs> yeah. on. You know, again, we're going back to the unfulfilled parental yeah. dreams. Um, who's going to college here, the uh, parent or the student? Uh-huh. Um, the student. Uh -huh. <laughs> we have to remember that. 
and it's it's not uh, easy to remember that when there's so much emotion involved in the process. Right. So that's one strategy you yes. mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So that particular strategy could open up opportunities for more financial aid funding mm -hmm. simply by eliminating the, the non-custodial, theoretically, income that might be much higher mm -hmm. uh, than the custodial parent. In the formula. Mm -hmm. Eliminate the person from the formula. That's right. And mm -hmm. it's all legal and above the board. Yeah. And it's about looking at colleges that only require that information. So that's, a, that's an arduous task because the student and the parents need to work on finding a great list of schools that are going to be academically, socially, and financially appropriate. And I think that's really how a college search should be done Yeah. Uh, to kind of fix what we used to always hear people say is, uh, oh, go get into the best college you can, and then we'll figure out how to pay for it later. That's just impossible today. Unless you can simply write a check for a quarter of a million dollars, which is what some of the most expensive schools are going to cost over four years, then you really should not be looking at schools that way. Yeah. You need to help your student understand what the parameters are. Are there any, um, are there any gates we need to put up here to keep the student on track? Oh, I see. Have you been in situations where you're s sitting with a student and uh, the student's parents who have been divorced? I have. Yeah, how is that? Sometimes it works well, sometimes not so well. Um, you know, I think the biggest uh, reminder that I'm always trying to say is to the parents, this isn't about you, this is about the student. Make sure that you guys are working together in this case to help the student find the right outcome. And let's try to take the guilt out of this. Let's try to take the emotion out as best we can because college has become so expensive and the return on investment is not as clear as it perhaps once was, it's important for the student to be looking at great schools where they're going to have opportunities to be exceptional and do it at the right price. And that's really important to have that as part of the conversation up front. That's a good message. All too often we see so much conflict about where to send a child uh, to college. And of course, I rarely hear about what the child wants because I'm dealing with the parents. But um, to me, you know, looking at their finances, as I am privileged to do in the course of a divorce, I see that sometimes they're completely unrealistic about what they're willing to pay for college and how to go about getting financial aid. Mm -hmm. We've given us some great ideas and tactics and strategies for fi maximizing financial aid and giving us a peek behind the curtain on the process, uh, the two processes with the two forms. I appreciate your joining me here today on Inside Divorce. This has been Todd Weaver from Strategies for College, and I hope you listen to uh, this and other podcasts that are on the website of Grossman & Associates LTD. This is Hindel Grossman. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a confident and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. -L, or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.